This is the Illuminate Podcast, a Sandy Boy production. Each week on the Illuminate Podcast, the hosts will bring you insightful conversations and stories of people who are illuminating their own lives through their business, work, community, family, and world. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Illuminate Podcast. This is your host, Kristen Struer. You are listening to episode 65. And today we have an episode that is absolutely perfect for this Thanksgiving week. Some heroes wear capes, but today's guest on the show is a quiet local hero who has used her role as an educator and community leader to serve others. Most recently, she has been working tirelessly behind the scenes, serving an immigrant population on the Eastern shore of Maryland as they face the COVID-19 pandemic. Today's guest is an amazing woman, Amanda Enser, a 17-year educator who has used the power of education and the connection of schools to improve the well-being of and empower families within her community. This episode is full of inspiration and is a great reminder about the power of education. Amanda talks about how living overseas inspired her to go into teaching. We discuss how schools serve as a lifeline for many families and the impact that COVID-19 is having on that lifeline. She humbly shares about the work she has been facilitating during the pandemic, which includes food and supply drives and keeping families supported and connected. You will learn also about some great children's literature. Amanda's wisdom, compassion, and leadership will leave you feeling that the future is bright because of heroes like her supporting the community and teaching our youth. Enjoy my conversation with Amanda. Hi, Amanda. Welcome to the Illuminate podcast. Hi, Kristen. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to have you here. I feel like we should maybe start by telling the listeners how we know each other. (laughs) (laughs) We go way back um, to Amanda's the older sister of my best childhood friend, Maggie, and so has served as kind of an older sister for me. Um, and so I've known you for almost my whole life, since yep. elementary school at least. Yep. Um, yeah. And Kristen's always been the other little sister, you know, the one that came on family vacations and um, all our big family events she's been a part of. So absolutely. And, you know, she got a lot of little sister treatment too, as we were, as we were growing up as well. So yes, I actually don't remember a time without Kristen in our life. I know it is fun to think about all the summers. I mean, when I think about like, what did you do every summer? It was like, oh, I went with the Rhodes family to the beach. Like that was what I did every summer. (laughs) Yep. And it's, it's um, so fun now to have the next generation of you know, with my girls and your boys and they get to have the same, same experiences that were so memorable to us as kids. I know. I love that. And especially when the world is right again and everybody can You're be exactly together right. at the beach. <laughs> <laughs> yes. When that, well, that does make everything better for sure. So Amanda, I, one of the reasons I want to talk to you is because one, your job right now is very relevant. You um, are in the school system, in the administration 
and you really started your career as a teacher. Tell me about why you chose to be a teacher. Okay, sure. Yeah, this is my 17th year in education. Um, I spent the first 15 years in the classroom, um, the most recently the fourth grade classroom. So I can't believe I'm already a 17-year educator. How did I get this? <laughs> um, but uh, so I am one of those women who, you know, grew up wanting to be a teacher, um, and was always loved playing the teacher role when we played, you know, make believe as we were little, those kinds of things. But the real sort of changing factor in my life, um, that really sort of made it stick was growing up overseas. Um, my dad was in the foreign service. And so I spent almost my entire uh, youth in living in third world countries. And one of the things that he did with the um, U.S. Agency for International Development was a lot of projects in education. And so I have very vivid memories of visiting some of his projects, especially in high school. I did all four years of high school in Guatemala. And um, he would take us out into the field, into some of his field projects up in the, the northern region of the country. And I have very vivid memories of what schools were like there. And I remember thinking to myself, of um, what a priority they made education, but how much they had to struggle to have those experiences. And so I really wanted to, when I came back to the US, um, it was a little bit of culture shock. And I also very quickly learned through my student teaching and so forth that education didn't have the same value um, here. And so it was a big eye opener for me to want to be part of that and to change that mindset. I don't want to say to, you know, to help us understand how lucky we are, but just to really change the view of what education can do for you, your future, the opportunity that it truly provides. I know it's sort of cliche to say that, but um, we take it for granted sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so I got to see that firsthand growing up as to how lucky um, children really are in this country. Um, and so that was kind of the, the tipping point for me to really get involved in public education. I love that. Now, before you were in Guatemala, where else did you live? Um, we lived in Haiti, Morocco, Nepal. And then after Guatemala, my family moved to South Africa. Um, and they were in South Africa when I was in college, but that made South Africa home for those four years that I was in college. Um, and going back there over Christmas breaks and the deeper I got into my education um, major at school, I spent even more time with my dad visiting his projects in the, the uh, surrounding rural townships in South Africa. Wow, that's awesome. Are there any specific memories or things that you just won't forget that you saw in either in Guatemala or in South Africa? In regards to in like teaching or just in general? Yeah, but, I mean, I just mean, what you were exposed to within the education systems that were there that were just so surprising. So I think that honestly, what really sticks out most is the smiles and the faces, mm -hmm. the genuine love and just absolute excitement for being in school when we visited these areas and having somebody make these opportunities available, I will never forget. I mean, some of most of the kids I would have loved to have just taken home with me. Mm -hmm. um, they were beautiful, just beautiful people inside and out and, and just so grateful. You know, I can, I really truly can picture their faces with these big white teeth and just grinning at us. Um, so excited to 
to have us come see what they were working on. And, you know, it's just a very different feel. Um, the excitement was just something I will never forget. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that there's that different feeling when you're in some of those, you know, rural underdeveloped communities around education than it is in the U S um, I truly think it's something we take for granted. And actually this, this will all sort of come full circle in a little bit as we get into the work that I'm doing now. But um, cause what I'm realizing is that even here on American soil, working with the migrant population that I work with now, I see those same smiles and that same excitement for the opportunities that we provide those families in our schools. I think it is the, I don't know. I, I really honestly don't know. I I'm, I'm still searching for that real reason. Um, but on, there is a lot of value in education and, and what opportunities it brings you. You know, I think a lot of times we don't know a world of not being able to go to school. Mm-hmm. In fact, some of us, you know, we view school as just another thing we have to get up and do. Can't wait till I graduate, check off that box. I'm done. I got my diploma, you know, just, it's just sort of a day-to-day rut routine of what we do, right? Because it's available to everyone. Yeah. Um, and in so many of these countries and then those those families who come to the U.S. and have that available to them, it's 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 an opportunity. It's a completely different mindset as this is something, especially for parents who bring their children here um, who may have never, you know, gotten more than two or three years of education in their home country. Um, it is so valuable to them because they they want their children to be able to learn everything they possibly can because they want to see that um, opportunity for them as you know as they grow to be adults. Mm. Yeah, it is really powerful to think about, and certainly now that I have two young boys, and my husband's work is also in education and schools in mm-hmm. in Uganda, and so how do we instill that? excitement and opportunity in a place where it is something that they will just do every day because that's what they're so fortunate to be able to do every day. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really, re- we've really realized also, and this is one thing that the, you know, the COVID pandemic has, has brought into light is the, um, school is, is a lifeline, right? And mm-hmm. it's a lifeline for families of all demographics. It's a lifeline, you know, for, um, children of all ages. And I think what I keep hoping, I should say that when we come out of this on the other side and we adjust to whatever our new normal is going to be, hopefully that, that value of what happens during the day at school is reinstilled. And we start to see, remember again, how maybe tough it was without having that access and connection to our schools in the same capacity as we did before the pandemic. Um, I keep hoping that that's going to be something that comes out on the other end of all this because, you know, parents and families are truly realizing um, the work that goes on at school beyond just academic growth, the social emotional, you know, just, I mean, it's such a, it's a whole child picture of all the things that happen in a, in a school building, right. In that Mm -hmm. public education system. And so I'm, you know, we've never been so closely connected in a sense with our families because they have to be involved. They don't have a choice right now with all these virtual learning um, programs taking place. So, you know, looking for silver lining and things, I do think, and I have, you know, you hear people say, man, I never knew, knew a teacher's job was so hard or gosh, teachers do a lot during the day or man, they put up with a lot. All these, all these things that 
I think they lost sight of because what did you do every day? You just got up and you went to school Then you came home and you did it again the next day. Um, so I'm hoping that, you know, despite all this uncertainty and as hard as this has been in so many aspects, that one of the things is that when these kids get back in school, they are going to be, that excitement will be there too. They're going to be so glad to be back in that setting, realize how important those routines are, realize why teachers hold the expectations that they do, um, and maybe move forward on the right foot. So we'll see. It's just a hope. Oh, that's such a good hope and a good way to, you know, a silver lining perhaps in, in all of this and that that hunger exists within so. our school system. <laughs> I mean, I've se- certainly seen it with friends of mine whose kids were virtual and then they've gone back to in-person, just seeing the excitement of the parents and the kids that are going back in person. Obviously now a lot of people are moving back to virtual, but I think I have seen the appreciation and the hunger existing in that kind of short blip, but hopefully when, when the new normal arrives that that will exist here. I hope so too. I really do. Okay. So you were a teacher for how many years of your 15 years in education? So 15 years, a teacher in the classroom, 15 years out of the classroom. Mm -hmm. Yep. And I've been out of the classroom for two years. Okay. And so what grades did you teach? I taught fifth, second, and then finished my career with 10 years in fourth grade, which was my absolute favorite grade level. (laughs) Um, I actually have really vivid memories of fourth grade. I had Mrs. Pleasant at Uh St. Anne's. Yes. And we grew chicks. And Uh, it was like the colonial years. I mean, I really actually remember fourth grade. (laughs) I, I mean, in teaching the other grade levels, um, fifth was not for me. It was, you know, like teaching seniors in high school because they're (laughs) the top of the elementary school. Um, but in a much more immature manner. Um, and I liked second grade, but what I really missed from second grade was just sort of, um, classroom discussions and like, you know, we could have real courageous conversations and classroom discussions that went on for extended period of time. So what, that's one of the reasons, you know, was I did a lot of shoe tying, a lot of here's go get a Kleenex, a lot of that kind of things in second grade. I mean, they were still, they were just, you know, they were there, they were at the end of learning to read. Right. And then they, they say the switch takes place in third, in third grade. And that's when you start to read, to learn. And I think that's where I really felt I was most comfortable when we were, I could expose my, my students to all kinds of things. And then they were really having the opportunity to learn about it in such a, um, so a bigger, I don't know, like global view of, of life. You just a lot of things and, 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 you know, nine and 10 year olds, um, they're pretty set in their ways. They have, they have a lot to share. Um, but they're also, they still love their teacher. Mm hmm. And so they're still willing to try just about anything. And I, so yeah, fourth grade was, fourth grade was ideal. I really, and those, those students are near and dear to me and I'm in touch with many of them as they go on into their adult life as well. So. Oh, I love that, that I can see how that, that age group would be just such an ideal age group to teach. Yep. Okay. What are the top, this is more for my, you know, future curiosity, top books that a fourth grader reads? Oh gosh, there's so many great books. Um, so obviously you still have your, your, your classic, right? Some of your role dolls, like one of the things in education that will never lose power and excitement is read alouds. It doesn't matter what you read. As long as the teacher is reading it aloud, kids are grabbing onto it. Um, 
but one of the most popular series that ended sort of ended with at my at the end of my career in the classroom was a series called The Real McCoys. Um, and by chance, the authors are semi-local to where we are. Um, and so they uh, they had been they'd been nominated for a Black Eyed Susan Award, which is the big book award in, in the state of Maryland. And um, so we ended up being able to, to buy a copy of the book for the entire school and then bring the authors to the school. Um, and there's, it's a series. So there's three books in this series in the real McCoy. And it's about a little fourth grade girl. Who's kind of a, um, a detective and the kids just latch onto her personality and her character. Um, so that book was a hit. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, but we read, oh my gosh, we read tons, the one and only Ivan. Um, there's just, uh, I have to say children's literature has, is like never before. Um, it's one of the things I miss most about my classroom is not being able to have a classroom library. However, in this new job, I have the opportunity of spreading powerful books into the community and in a greater capacity. Um, but children's books are just the best way to get about any message across on anything under the sun. Um, no matter the age of the the child or the adult really. So you have a lot that. to look forward to in yeah. reading. <laughs> we Gabe loves to read, so we read lots of books. He's kind of at the cusp where he could probably start a chapter book because mm-hmm. he listens well, but he really likes to see pictures yeah. and he likes to see what's going on in the page. So we're yeah. probably a little ways off from being able to start kind of longer. Well, I have books to like say, that. and you know, there was a lot of pushback initially when these first came out, but graphic novels are, you know, graphic novels were the way that all my non readers started to love reading. Hmm. And even my daughter, who's 10, um, she's a fifth grader this year. She has been, you know, she plows through a graphic novel in a night. She loves to read. She's an avid reader. And she reads, you know, she's, she read the Harry Potter series over the quarantine part of the the pandemic, et cetera. But um, graphic novels are an incredible way to still have those visual images and capture their attention. Plus they're written in the way that our, this new generation of brains work because, um, you know, they're short and there's lots to look at and it's, they're just, they're, Apparently also now that they've been around for a little bit longer with Captain Underpants and Dogman and all those kinds of things that have come out, um, it is now proven to improve comprehension skills quite significantly, which at first mm-hmm. some of the some of the more classic um, reading gurus weren't big fans. And now they're, everybody is kind of realizing, oh, maybe graphic novels are okay and a great way, <laughs> great way to get kids reading. So Interesting. He, okay. He might like those. He, 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 I mean, he would probably follow them. There's always a lot of humor in them as well, but mm-hmm. they're just great to look at, but there's a lot more depth to the actual writing. Okay. That's really cool. I don't recall anything like that when I was reading. The The thing I remember reading in fourth grade was the Benicula series. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, that <laughs> one's... <laughs> I do know the Benicula series. I mean, they've even turned, you know, I was a Babysitter's Club lover oh, yeah. right? back in the day. Oh, yeah. That was a little bit later, maybe fifth grade. But um, they've even turned those into graphic novels. Hmm. They've redone that series into a graphic novel series now that the kids love. Interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess I do have a lot to look forward to. You do. You have some great books in your future. I can't wait. That's great. (laughs) Gabe has now pulled out all the Curious George books that my husband, whose name is George, um, has in his stash. So we're we're plowing through those currently. That's a great series, though. That's fun. Yeah. So, okay. So you were in the classroom for 15 years, but you made a transition. 
recently, yes. two years ago. Yes. Tell me more about what you're doing now. Okay. So <laughs> by, by actual title, it doesn't mean a whole lot when I say it out loud um, because it's a pretty complex position, but um, what I am is, is, is called the family engagement specialist. And so by law, which unless you're really deeply involved in public education, especially in um, Title I communities, which is the, the more than 40% of the school has is it of low socioeconomic um, status, um, you have to have somebody who is working to build capacity of the families in that community. Um, mm -hmm. It the federal law, every student succeeds act actually requires that section 1116. So it's part of, it's part of our federal law, this position, most counties actually across the country have teams of family engagement um, teams, family engagement specialists. And the whole, the whole purpose is to just build a strong foundation or an intentional and kind of authentic partnership between home and school. Hmm. Um, so what it looks like a lot is doing professional development for teachers on how to improve that, um, that partnership. And then also working with families to become advocates for themselves and their families, and then teaching them better ways to communicate with schools. So it's, it's really building that, that, um, two-way communication between home and school. So that's kind of what the, the role is, um, defined in Queen Anne's County, Maryland, where I work. Um, I'm a one-man team because we are small. So this um, this job has taken on a lot of other um, pieces and responsibilities and parts and things like that. And um, all stemming, though, from working with our, our local community, right, working with our families. Um, and so I do a lot of professional development for teachers. And that's okay. actually something I've gotten quite a passion for. Because I guess one of the things that's been greatest about this transition is I used to be able to do things on a very small scope in my classroom, right? I would get my class of 17 to 25 kids. Um, at one point, you know, I was, my, I was a mindful educator, so we did lots of mindfulness in my mm. classroom. But I was only able to sort of touch those, those 18 kids in my class at the time. Um, so there were things that I made time for in my own room, in my four walls. I'd close the door, kind of forget about the must-dos and... Um, pacing guides and all the things you're supposed to keep up with. And I was able to sort of have an impact and do those things that I found to be really, really important um, in just growing kind human beings, right, um, in my classroom. Mm -hmm. So I started to sort of struggle a little bit with more with what they, you know, mandated curriculum and things like that. And some of the things that I felt were most important, we were getting less and less time for. So this position, um, I'm lucky enough to be building it because they did not have it until I got the role two years ago in Queen Anne's County. So I was the first family engagement specialist. So I've had a lot of leeway into building as to what this position looks like. And it's, it's been an incredible learning experience for me. It has provided an insane amount of professional growth and it has reconnected me to some of those things, those reasons that I went into education in the first place on a scale that almost feels like most, like some days that have come full circle. One of the biggest pieces of this job is in I, in the northern part of our county. It is extremely rural. We are in farm country here on Maryland's eastern shore. Um, lots of soy bean fields and mm -hmm. chicken chicken farms. Mm -hmm. um, so we get a lot of migrant workers and a lot of immigrants uh, are in this area. And actually, one of our one of our schools now 
uh, in the literally one stoplight town, middle of nowhere, um, is almost 50% Latino Mm. or Latinx. And what is amazing to me though, of that 50%, 86% of them are from Guatemala. Oh, really? So that is this, the full circle moment that I had. So all these families are coming and I always, you know, it's amazing how they find this. I just, it's mind boggling. How in the heck did you find this part of the United States? But yeah, they are from Guatemala. A lot of them are from the indigenous villages in the Northern region. Um, actually when they come, many of them don't even speak Spanish. They speak some of the, they speak mom and Quiche and some of the, the, um, indigenous languages. Um, but I have, you know, I was lucky enough and yeah, sure. You know, I'm, I'm 40 now, but so 20 years ago or 22 years ago, I was lucky enough to visit many of their villages and I have some pretty vivid memories of being in Guatemala. And so that gives me an immediate connection to a lot of these families. Mm -hmm. Trust is obviously an issue, this world that we live in, um, especially in the political climate that we've had for the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. So, you know, setting foot into your child's school, asking questions at the front, the front door, feeling welcome, all of those, like building that, that welcoming environment is a huge part of my, my job is how do I ensure that every, every parent, every caregiver who walks into the building feels like they belong. Mm. Regardless of anything else in their background, you're opening your doors to educate their children. Right. And they need to know that they have, you know, that sure, we may be the experts in terms of content, but they're, they will always be the first child of or first teacher of their child. Right. Mm -hmm. So they are the expert of their child. And so how, you know, we, we have to have that partnership. They have to ask questions. Um, and for a lot of my Latino population too, it's been, it's been a big work, uh, a big project to work with them on, on, it's okay to ask an educator a question. It's okay to ask questions about your child. It's okay to, to not be satisfied with everything that the schools provide. You know what I mean? Cause they are so grateful for the experience mm-hmm. and they value it so much that sometimes they, they need some, just, just like, Hey, it's our, you know, here's, here's a list of questions. When you go to parent teacher conferences, here's some things that you can ask. Mm-hmm. Um, so like I said, the, the full circle moment, I have been working with some just near and dear families. Um, I was luckily lucky enough to be granted a, um, a grant through the National Center for Families um, Learning and through the Mid-Atlantic Equity Consortium to set up a family learning community in my little elementary school that's over 50% Latinx. And so um, I have, you know, last year was our first year in this program and I, and, and uh, I had eight families last year enroll, and by the end of the year, I had 14. And basically, it's a family literacy program. They they partner with their teacher. They partner with their child. They spend time in their child's classroom. I spend time doing something called parent time with them, where we work on any personal goals, or we did mm-hmm. yoga one day, anything that really speaks to them as the adult. And then there's an adult education piece to help them move forward with their own personal goals, um, whether it is learning English or um, some of them are working to get their, you know, their, their high school diploma. It's just, some of them want to go to beauty school. Some of them want to start their own business. So we work on all of that. You know, some of my proudest moments are just like the one lady, she started her own cleaning business over the summer and we were able to get put together her business card and all of this happens through <sighs> this program. So it's just a, it's a real wow. wrap around the entire family. So this year was year two of that program. And, um, we are already up to 18, 18 families enrolled, um, which is <laughs> tremendous. And 
and the best part, we're doing it all virtually. Wow. So here is a, a group of immigrants who have come in. I've, um, you know, they've, they've received an iPad and a hotspot and they're learning how to do Google meets. They're learning how to do, um, Google classroom and how to check their Gmail. And, um, and it's just a very slow, steady process. Mm -hmm. And I'm using my Spanish and learning, you know, it's getting better every day and they're practicing. We always, you know, we, we made a deal. They would practice their English with me. I practiced my Spanish with them. Um, but again, you know, people are always like, well, why is it only Latin, you know, the Latin population who's in, involved in this program? And it's, it's offered to everyone. Everyone receives an invitation. And, and this is now the second year in a row we've only had um, our Latino families take advantage of the program. So I think it speaks volumes again as to what is, uh, you know, just the opportunity that it presents them mm -hmm. and how they really value that opportunity. That's awesome. Are the, the family members who are attending, I'm just curious, is it more mothers, fathers? <laughs> is it a mix? It's a mix actually. Okay. So we have, um, this year I have, I have three dads who were the ones that came in and, um, very adamant about being able to help their child learn at home. And, you know, I think even now they're, they're trying to do some of the teaching at home and obviously they're doing it in English and which is not their first or mm -hmm. sometimes their second language, obviously. And, um, you know, so they are, they're just so, they're so grateful for anything we provide part of this program that, um, kind of grew out of the, the, you know, closure last year in, in, in March or was, so how can I help these kids continue and these families continue to make progress at home? So we created this thing called the backpack, um, which parent and child together time is part of the sort of national, the national program. Okay. Um, but we basically just took a physical backpack and filled it with stuff, puzzles and, um, manipulatives and notebooks and stories and puppets and all these things that the, that these families could do together with their children at home. Um, so now this has continued into this year. So every month they come pick up their backpack full of whatever it may be this year. On this past month, it was all around family. So it had books about books about family. It had books about traditions. It had um, books about learning where the story of your name so it's really to help promote conversation at home and to provide some learning experiences that they would otherwise not be able to do so. Um, you know, cause when you ask them, we do a pre, uh, pre, a survey when they first become part of it. And a lot of them, you say, you know, do you, are you able to provide your, your child with any additional learning materials at home? And the answer is, you know, 99% of the time, no. Mm -hmm. um, these are very multi-generational homes. There's a lot of families, you know, who are, you know, living in, you know, living with three or four other families. Mm -hmm. um, so, and who were hit very, very hard by the pandemic. I yeah. mean, this is the, the population that was still working. And, you know, we had COVID was not kind to many of my, um, mm -hmm. many of my families, but still they were the ones who were continuously turning their work in and participating virtually. And it's just amazing to me. Yeah. So what has happened with the pandemic in in these families and what have you like, what ways have you had to really adjust with them or, or what have you done to really outreach to them? So, um, so again, you know, I talked a little bit before about school being like being a lifeline mm -hmm. and like, this was more apparent than ever. So when we first closed down and people started getting sick, 
that I spent a lot of time initially trying to educate them on things that they needed to do um, health-wise. So we have a lot of families who are also illiterate in their native language, right? So how do you how do you share information about health protocol and wearing a mask and washing mm-hmm. your hands and here's what you do if you get sick and here's this. So there was a lot of time and phone calls and um, text messages that they can then read, you know, or turn or just have them read to them on their phones, you know, trying to get that information across mm-hmm. initially just educating them about what was happening before masks were kind of, I don't want to say they weren't a thing, but they weren't, you know, we weren't mandated to wear them. Like, right. If you remember back in March and April, that sort of came a little bit later. Mm-hmm. And when it did, many of them did not have masks. So I actually had, um, with the assistance of my aunt's, uh, project, the mooncatcher.org, um, you know, she was, she, they make reusable pads for a children and other, or women in other countries to promote girls staying in school but they switched it over to making masks. And especially mm. here in the U S they made a lot of masks um, initially during that time for some of our native American populations and reservations out West who were struggling with having access to that. So she sent me just bunches of material and I had a, I created a sewing sort of a sewing cohort of local ladies in this area. Um, and I delivered materials to each of their doorsteps back in April. And then they produce masks. And then we were able to distribute those masks to, um, our immigrant communities and some of the very, you know, more rural communities that just didn't have, didn't know that that's what they needed at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, the other big piece that mainly it was sort of a drop everything and meet basic needs, uh, time initially. So we worked geez, night and day to, you know, collect a lot of kids. The only time they eat is when they're in school. Yep. So how do we get these school meals back up and running? And is this going to hold you over for the weekend? So I learned more about the food industry than I ever thought I, I would know. Um, you know, my dear husband ended up helping me uh, lug gallons and gallons and gallons of milk. You know, we had, I reached out to dairy farmers and, and you know, dairy corporations who I knew were having to throw their milk away. And we were having, you know, 1,200 gallons donated to the, the county, which then we distributed throughout the community. Um, it was, it was really a big time basic needs, um, focus in the spring and into the summer. Mm. Luckily that has shifted some, but again, this past Friday, you know, we get a lot of assistance with the, the, the cares dollars now, and there's, there's money put towards that. But, um, with one of our local resource centers, um, a couple of teachers and I, we were able to hand out 350 turkeys, and oh. all of the fixins for the fixins, the fixings mm. for Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving dinner to our families in that community. And it was great watching them come through. I mean, it was just a drive through. They would just come through and we'd put it in their cars, picking up meals for Thanksgiving. And they're so grateful. Um, so, you know, That's that need, awesome. that need continues and we still try and meet those needs. And uh, people are obviously in a little bit better place now because uh, we've all learned so much during this. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, you know, it was mayhem. It was just complete panic. And when you couldn't just go into the school or call the teacher and ask a question, they didn't know who to turn to. I was getting a lot of calls. Where do I go to get tested? Or what do I do Mm -hmm. about this symptom? And, you know, realizing that schools really, you know, you become the health professional, you become a finance, um, advisor, you become, you know, you take on so many roles as an educator for, for vulnerable families, because that's Mm -hmm. where they, that's where they trust. That's where, you know, they trust you with their children. They're going to trust you with anything. 
Yeah, you're right. It's the lifeline. Mm-hmm. Yep. So how did you guys, how did the distrib- food distribution work? So you were so, getting, getting food in, donated. Yeah, so, yes. So it, it was twofold. Um, the schools got permission to provide a certain amount of meals, like through their school meal service. But we were concerned about, you know, feeding the whole family at that mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. Um, so we ended up doing a huge community drive and donation sort of emergency donations. And it was a a humongous success. It was a ton of work, but really we were able to get, oh gosh, all kinds of things. What I ended up doing was writing a community, um, I guess, you know, newsletter email saying, okay, this week, my goal, and we, I would try and pick things that were sort of, that went two ways, right? So we would put together simple meals we would put together simple meals that kids could possibly have to make on their own if their families, adults weren't home, but also something that would feed a lot of kids, right? Mm. Or feed a big family. How smart. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I would say, okay, this week we're collecting cereal because I knew I would, you know, I, I knew I was getting a donation of gallons of milk. So I'm collecting cereal or we're collecting um, pasta and spaghetti sauce. So we're collecting, you know, one time we had hot dogs, macaroni and cheese. Um, we tried to be also culturally sensitive and culturally aware too. And some of them, you know, we would, you know, we would get the bags of maize and other things we knew that they would need to make tortillas and things that they would ask for that way too. Mm-hmm. So, but what we realized is once we sort of streamlined it and we would put together, um, a local grocery store donated paper bags and we had this huge assembly line operations going on in a couple of the school buildings, we were using the school refrigerators for storage for our milk and some of the other um, perishable things. And we would put together grocery bags and families would come in once a week and we would load their cars up um, with a grocery bag. And a lot of times we were able to get local restaurants and, you know, like Chick-fil-A, for example, would donate uh, 40 Chick-fil-A meals and they would drive it out to the school. And so the first 40 families that came through got a Chick-fil-A meal and their bag of groceries. So it was like a special treat. As the weather got hotter, we did a lot of ice cream and uh, Rita's ice. They would donate frozen, you know, little pints of that that I could hand out. So it was um, really the community came together like like I've never seen before. And it was just, we were just moving food constantly. Um, A lot of other things, you know, baby there was a lot of need for baby mm-hmm. um, gear, diapers and wipes and formula and that kind of thing. So we were able to gather that as well. And then, of course, especially at the middle school, we did a huge drive for feminine products. Um, a lot of my girls, my students rely on school to have access to those too. Oh, interesting. Is that something <clears throat> that's pretty typical for schools to provide? Yeah. And Okay. Well, so... Yes and no. Okay. So school nurses office have them at the mm-hmm. middle school level and actually some elementary schools. Um, but <laughs> it's kind of a, we're still in 2020 and a major, um, shift in that too. There has been some Senate bills put out about mandating that, um, they be available for free in all, mm. um, girls bathrooms in schools mm-hmm. because, you know, it's, it's a kind of a big deal. You have to go down to the nurse. The other thing is, and you know, the nurse's office, they, they really get like, um, the hospital grade size, gigantic pads, (laughs) which no middle school girl wants to use. Sure. Um, and so we kind of have like a, I call it like the black market, but honestly, they know they can come to my office and I have this huge drawer full of 
whatever they want, um, you know, na- name brand, some name brand stuff or things that they want to use or like the teenage kind that mm-hmm. fit their little tiny bodies or the guidance counselor. You know, there are certain teachers that keep it in their in their rooms and, and they know that they can go there. Um, but knowing that, yeah, there's a lot of kids that that really, truly rely on school to have access to those. Those are just expensive and they, they can't get them at home. Mm-hmm. Um, so those went fast. They were a hot commodity when, when our families would drive through and we had, you know, the grocery pickups were on Fridays and when they would drive through, um, uh, you, you, you know, the family would say, does anybody need feminine products? And you'd get a lot of takers and they would go quickly. Okay. Huh. That is definitely one of the things that I wouldn't have thought of. I mean, it makes total sense. Mm-hmm. It's that. just, yeah, and we did, you know, and we, we tried to do lots of hygiene stuff because, uh, again, that's mm-hmm. another thing schools provide and dish soap and, you know, yeah. it was just things that were, were already hard to get anyway. Um, you know, we, we would we would hit the jackpot. I had a couple shoppers um, who once we, we got a little, we started getting a little bit of like emergency service money through the county, not much, but when they were able to just, you know, purchase toilet paper when it would come on something and we would just buy it and we would take what we could get so we could at least throw a couple rolls of toilet paper in the top of their grocery bags. I mean, whatever we could get our hands on that was useful and, you know, we knew that they were in need of, we would try and get. So many layers of heroes involved in this <laughs> process. It's just, yeah, it, it really is. And it's amazing. It's an, and I, you know, again, going back to all those silver linings, just another thing, right? So the middle school principal, for example, had no idea he's a man, first year principal, no clue that feminine products were even an issue or something that needed to be, dusted, you know, dealt with at the school, mm-hmm. just not in his, his line of sight. Sure. So now totally on board for, oh, why don't we have these available in every bathroom? Well, yeah, this is the kind of conversations, you know what I mean? There's a lot of that type of thing that, that has come out from this. Um, and just even for educators, a lot of the teachers, you know, they knew their kids struggled at home, but they, they were more focused on, well, they come into school tired, they're not getting their work done, that sort of, of thing. Mm-hmm. But hey, okay, so now here's a kid who's, who's literally trying to survive day to day and finish all of their work. And, you know, it was very eye opening for a lot of people. Um, and also a very helpless feeling, you know, we have our hands on, we, we know when a kid's cold at school, we can go get a winter jacket and figure out how to, how to take care of that situation. But when you're not laying eyes on them and you're not, you know, it's a, a very helpless feeling for many, many teachers because we can't do the things that just kind of naturally occur at school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That lifeline. Mm-hmm. So your schools are back virtual again. They are. Uh, we started back with some just small group instruction and then as of tomorrow, they're back virtual again. Our numbers have skyrocketed like most of the country, I mm-hmm. think, but. So were you reverting back to some of the things you put in place previously or what does that look like going forward? Some of, yes, some of it will be, there are some things that we will be looking at. Um, you know, a lot of people are still in work are still working. So Mm -hmm. some of that dire need is not, is not there yet to that level. Um, we have ensured that, um, we have a Queen Anne's County Christmas angels and the adoptive bear program, everything we've wanted to ensure that all of our students through the eighth grade will have some form of Christmas, um, 
you know, adoptive bear, those kinds of organizations have have sort of cut us off at second grade. So we've we've it's it's relied on again community um, community people to donate for a very specific list of students from second through eighth grade, mm. a long list of students. So we've been working on that, you know, just which is amazing, and and we've had some you know big every every student this year is getting bedding and warm bedding. Um, regardless, they're all getting new pillows, they're all getting new comforters and, oh, and blankets awesome. and things. So in addition to anything that they may or may not have asked for, or, you know, that their interest, everybody, we wanted to ensure that everyone had, you know, what they needed to be warm. Um, so awesome. yeah, there, there's obviously more, there's more assistance from the local government. There's more assistance from the, um, school, um, food services and things because they've had time to think about it and prepare. So it wasn't mm-hmm. when we were like really in that emergency state of how do we get food home to kids? Um, and so now, you know, they're, they're more prepared that way. So I don't know how I don't, I'm hoping I won't have to do too much heavy lifting of gallons of milk, but if we do, we will, mm-hmm. um, you know, this is at least this way we have some, some systems in place that will ensure that our families are getting what they need. That's amazing. So if somebody is listening to this and they say, I want to help, or what advice would you give somebody that wants to support their local community? Maybe it's their educators. Maybe it's the migrant families. Maybe it's some another vulnerable person or population within their community. What would you advise somebody? That's a, that's a loaded question. There's a lot there. <laughs> um, no. So, so reach out to your school systems, right? Reach out to your community school. I guarantee they need something. Um, you know, I guarantee there is, there is something. The other thing that I know, um, if you have local shelters, um, local food banks, all of those things, reach out to them too and, and ask them to be specific. What I found in doing all this, especially with food, is that, you know, it was very, you get a lot of food drives where people go into their pantries and they just grab what they're not eating and then they take it and then it, you know, but like really thinking through, okay, what will feed a family of five? What's an easy peanut butter and jelly sandwiches go a long way for a long time. Um, but, you know, calling and offering and, 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 or, you know, going into one of those local places and saying, how can I help? It, it, I think what I have found is like, you make, you know, obviously, you make a connection between with one or two people and you feel like, okay, I've, you know, you feel whole again. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so that is, that is something I, I, the other thing is, um, (laughs) there's, there's so much to be said, and this is kind of a, a bigger piece in all of this, right. So challenge things that you see are wrong, right. Be a voice for people who don't have one. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there are lots of local agencies across the country that, that work with our immigrant and our migrant populations, especially our immigrant youth, who may be in dire need of something more than ever right now. But again, it's just sort of stepping out of your comfort zone and making that phone call and reaching out and checking in. And even if you call your local school, chances are they can point you to a, you know, an organization or a, um, a group that may need some assistance, whether financially or through manpower or whatnot. But I think that it's just so important to get out of our own personal box right now. We are, everybody's uncertain, everybody's unsettled. This feels chaotic to, to all of us. Um, and what 
I have found, and as I've said throughout this conversation, right, is, is finding those silver lining pieces is, mm-hmm. is having to get out of my own world and realizing, okay, you know, I'm pretty lucky to be, um, stuck in the house with my family and have a backyard to go out and play in and, um, food on our table, all these things. And so, you know, it's helped me not to, to fall into that. Oh, I'm so miserable trap by going out and, and doing all these other things too. Mm-hmm. So just, you know, um, kind of getting out of your box, getting out of your comfort zone just a little bit now is, you know, now's a really, really good time for that. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's great advice and the cases are rising and it's getting cold and mm-hmm. there's still a lot of unknowns right now. And yep. And so I think like you, you say, right. The, the, the whole idea behind this is that the illuminate piece, right? Mm-hmm. So how important it is to go, to go be that bright light, be mm-hmm. that, you know, somewhere. Um, and <laughs> I always say, right, the sun will rise and we'll try again. Mm-hmm. So, and I think that's, you know, what I've really tried to reiterate to my families too. I've done a lot of like, um, sent a lot of video messages through social media and other outlets to get, to get, positive messages out into the community. Um, most recently last week I put together a video I called reboot and it was sort of like, okay, we know we're going into virtual learning and we know this feels just completely a mess again. And, um, but guess what, right? This is, we, we learn from mistakes. You can get up, you can start your routine all over again the next day. Um, routines are meant to fall apart. You know, there's just, it's mm-hmm. that whole idea of trying again, trying again, trying again. And so helping like even your neighbors or your girlfriend or whoever calls, I mean, just, it's that, it's just getting that message of, okay, let's, you know, tomorrow the sun will rise and we can try it again. I love that. Amanda, you are illuminating in (laughs) so many ways. I mean, you really are one of the heroes of this pandemic in what you're doing in your community and how you're making these connections. And I'm really grateful that you've shared that with me today. Well, it's been, it's been a pleasure. And, um, thanks for, thanks for giving me a platform to, to talk about it and hopefully inspire others to do more of that too. Absolutely. And the sun will rise. That's right. The sun will rise and we'll try again. Yeah. So we have a couple end of podcast questions that I'd love to ask you. Okay. So obviously you are somebody that is illuminating in your community and your family, um, who's somebody that illuminates for you? Um, okay. Wow. You know, so we can go, yeah, we can go like large scale. And I think of, I mean, like most of the world, right. RBG and how much Mm -hmm. she's left. She's left for, um, I recently watched the movie with my two girls raising daughters and she speaks directly to me and to them. So, um, the base on the basis of sex, we watched that recently and it was just the conversations and questions that they have. And, um, that has obviously, you know, she will always and forever be somebody that Mm. speaks directly to me, but I, to think of it more of kind of on a, um, on a personal level. Um, so I refer to, I mean, I adore both of my daughters, but I refer to my 10 year old as, um, we always sing, here comes the sun. She's the sunshine. Um, and I was thinking about that this weekend, actually, I, I watched her play soccer 
and she is just one of the most incredible teammates of I will ever, ever, ever see. I am one of the most competitive people in the world. <laughs> and she, she is just so kind. She is such a kind soul. Is everybody's great job. You, you did such a great job. And people will say, gosh, she brings so much light and joy. Um, you know, she got the Sunshine Award in, in her fourth grade class and things like that. So she really is, as we were giggling at the dinner table tonight, she really does um, bring a whole lot of light to some pretty dark days. So I have to, I have to, sometimes when you're the younger sister, you don't get a lot of credit for things, but she truly is, she truly illuminates in my life for sure. And knowing that little one, she really, (laughs) I can attest to that she is truly sunshine. She is. She definitely is. She's a pretty amazing kid. Um, From a pretty amazing mom. So it makes sense. We're trying, we're trying to raise them, right? Strong women raise strong daughters. You're, right? you're raising some trying. amazingly <laughs> strong women for sure. Now you've given some great fourth grade book recommendations, but do you have any other? We always ask our guests to give one book recommendation. Okay. So I'm going one of my other sort of side projects. Um, I am working on uh, a lot of anti-racism um professional development for teachers during this critical time, just in, in, in a, in a world where kids don't have the chance to come into school and talk about social injustice and have a plan, a platform for these conversations. So I've been doing a lot of reading in that genre. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know I mentioned before children's books, really, honestly, I feel like if you ever need to teach a lesson, find a children's book to match, it's there and they're so brilliant. But uh-huh. one of the other, um, books I've been reading a lot of are the young adult books. And what I have found, especially in regard to the topic of anti-racism, um, they speak to my soul. They are just, um, so I want to recommend a book called all American boys by, uh, Jason Reynolds and Brendan Keeley or Kylie. I'm not sure how it's pronounced the last name. Um, but it, it just basically, it is written from the perspective of a two teenagers <clears throat> in a community where there is an issue between a, a black boy and um, a white police officer. Um, and it goes back and forth from their perspectives and it just really challenges systemic racism and it really talks about the impact of community turmoil on all, all members of the community. And so uh, it'll make you cry. It is, mm-hmm. it is a powerful, powerful book. Um, but so easy to follow. I also would recommend listening to it on Audible um, or listening to the audio version because uh, they do a great job of going back and forth between the characters and you really start to connect um, with the two of them. So that would be on my sort of top of my list right now. That's awesome. That's a great recommendation and obviously really important for us to be reading now. And I love that you're bringing that into your family engagement piece. It's so important. It's mm-hmm. so important, especially living in this very um, white rural community that I live in. But these mm-hmm. conversations have to happen. But honestly, too, as, a, as, an, as an adult, how much I need to learn and how much more self-awareness I need to have um, in this, you know, not racist versus anti-racist mm-hmm. world we need to start adapting to. But this book, you won't be able to put it down. It's just a great story that encompasses all those lessons. Awesome. I can't wait to read that. 
And my last question for you is what is your message for the world? I'm going to go with my, you know, the sun will rise and we will try again, right? So it's, it's, uh, it's so important to remember that, you know, we, we can do this. Every day is a different day. Every day is a new day. And we'll just, we'll try again. Thank you so much, Amanda. What a perfect episode for this Thanksgiving week. Because it is Thanksgiving this week in the U.S., we just want to share our gratitude with you all for supporting the podcast throughout this year, and we hope that these episodes have left you inspired and with your own thankfulness. For those of you who are celebrating, we wish you a happy and safe Thanksgiving this year.